Hello, welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Questioning Jesus. This series provides honest answers to some of the most important questions people ask regarding the truth of Jesus and Christianity. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. How many of you uh, noticed the strange coincidence this year that Easter has fallen on April Fool's Day? Um, and some people have actually been you, you know, making commentary that they think that that's good because they consider the whole concept of Easter and, in fact, the Christian faith to be something for fools, and they consider that faith in their terms, is something that is blind and foolish. In fact, if we're honest, how many of you have ever heard of the, the phrase blind faith? And that's what people oftentimes refer to it as. You have facts, and then you have faith, and the two are separated. They don't have anything to do with one another, and in fact, is faith is blind. But that itself is actually a foolish statement. That has nothing to do with faith. It had nothing to do with what faith was in the Scripture down throughout history, actually until very recent times. And faith itself does not shy away from tough questions. That's why we're going to take six weeks and just say, well, what about suffering and evil in the world? Is Jesus really the only way back to God? Can the Bible really be trusted? These kinds of questions. Because true faith should not shy away from questions, even if they seem to be difficult. And today we're going to begin with the most important of these questions. This is the central question, quite honestly. Once you answer this one, everything else is just kind of the details. And that question is in regard to the resurrection. Did the resurrection of Jesus actually happen? And let me be very clear. Here is what the Christian faith means by the resurrection. It's not some nice platitude that, well, Jesus lived on in the hearts of his disciples. It's not some platitude that, well, yes, Jesus died, but because he taught good things and he lived a good life, his message has continued on. That has nothing to do with what the resurrection is about. The message of the resurrection on which everything else in the Scripture and everything else in the Christian faith hinges is this, that after Jesus had been dead for three days, on the third day, he got up 
and he walked out of the tomb as alive as you and I are, that he had flesh and bones, the same body that had died was made alive and transformed and changed, but actually walked out of the tomb so that the tomb was empty and he had conquered death. That's what's meant by resurrection. So let's be real clear on that up front. And this is the most important question because if that is not true, we're gonna see as the Apostle Paul tells us, then the whole Christian faith is a farce and you all were silly for getting out of bed early this morning and coming here. And so was I. But if it is true, it actually answers every one of the other difficult questions we're going to talk about. Because then Jesus is who he said he is. He has actually conquered death. And though we may not understand all things, we can trust the one who has told us, I am actually God in the flesh. I have actually conquered death. And you can put your faith in me because I will bring you through. So this is the central question, and that's why we begin with it. Now, <clears throat> let's dive in then and look at this question of the resurrection. It's really kind of interesting that as we're going to see, all of these questions are asked and answered in Scripture. There's really nothing new under the sun. And the Corinthians were asking a lot of similar questions we have today. Actually, in the letter that Paul wrote to this church at Corinth, they didn't have a background in faith. They were really all coming out of very different ideas when they became Christians. So they had a lot of questions. So Paul wrote back to them, and he's answering those questions, especially in the last half of the letter. And one of the main questions, which he deals with in all of chapter 15, the entire chapter, is about the question of the resurrection. Did the resurrection really occur? And interestingly, in answering that question for the Corinthians, Paul answers almost all the main questions that people today bring up, or he answers the, the ways that people think about and try and get around the resurrection actually happening. So let's talk then, what is the evidence for the resurrection? Why do we believe as Christians that the resurrection actually happened? Well, the first thing that sometimes people say to get around the resurrection is, you know, look, maybe Jesus wasn't in the tomb, but that's because he didn't actually die. He, he passed out, it looked as if he was dead, and then later on he wasn't really resurrected because resurrections don't happen. I mean, they don't happen. People die, and then that's the end. So Jesus wasn't really raised. But notice what Paul tells us here in 1 Corinthians 15 before he even gets to the resurrection. He tells us, what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the most important things. And the very first thing is Christ died. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and he was buried. And the early church is really clear on this, because if Christ only merely looked like he was dead, there is no gospel. Because the gospel begins with the fact that Jesus died that we might be made alive. He died that our sins might be forgiven. And so if he only swooned on the cross, then in fact, there is no gospel because we would still be in our sins. And notice Paul even says, this is according to the scriptures. The whole Old Testament was looking forward to a Messiah, a Savior that would die for our sins. And so if he didn't die, Jesus couldn't be that person. So the entire gospel is built on the fact of his death. But maybe the gospel's wrong. So how do we know that he actually died? Well, fortunately, we have eyewitness testimony of the fact that Jesus did die. In John's gospel, John was one of the 12 
followers of Jesus that we refer to as disciples and then apostles. And he was the only one that didn't chicken out and run away. When they came to get Jesus, all the rest of the apostles fled, left Jesus behind, dropped him like a bad habit, and were gone, except for John. He stayed there, and he records what happens, and he tells us in his gospel, in John chapter 19, beginning at verse 32, John records this. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. The Romans, what they would do is after you'd been crucified, what you actually died from in crucifixion was not blood loss or pain. What you normally died from was asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe because you would keep pressing up to keep breathing. So what they would do is, it's grotesque, but they would break your legs so you could no longer push up, and then you would suffocate in short order. This was a standard thing. Actually, if some of you were here at the Easter egg hunt yesterday, Mark Holmes had his Bible display and his ancient artifacts, and he had one of the nails that was used in crucifixions because there are millions of them in the Holy Land. Because the Romans, this was not a rare practice. They were extremely practiced. They knew how to do crucifixions. And so John tells us they they were breaking the legs. But notice in verse 33, but when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. That's in fulfillment of a prophecy, John would tell us in a couple of verses. Um, So instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So the soldiers came up and they look at him. And you have to remember, these are guys, you and I might look at somebody who's crucified and mistake whether they were still alive or not. But these guys did this all the time. They were quite well aware whether somebody's dead or not. So they said, well, we don't have to break his legs, but just to make sure, we're going to go ahead and shove a spear into his side because if he was gasping his last, that'll be the end of him when we put it in. And John is actually an eyewitness giving testimony to that. He observed that, saw it personally, and knew that Jesus was dead. Now what's interesting is actual modern medical technology has discovered if somebody goes through the process that Jesus was described as going through, when they die, if you pierce their side, guess what flows out? Blood and water. Exactly what's described here. Now they didn't have modern medical technology like we have to understand all that's going on biologically inside the body, but you don't really need that if you're watching a guy put the spear in the side of a dead person, and then you just say, this is what happened. And that's actually what John does for us. And so, interestingly, what goes on here is this idea that Jesus didn't really die didn't appear for almost 1,800 years. No contemporary said Jesus didn't die. Everybody agreed that he died. There were some people who tried to come up with excuses to get around his resurrection, but everybody agreed he was dead until 1,800 years later because a bunch of German scholars decided they knew better than the people who watched it. Uh, So if you think about it for a minute, the claim is Jesus is on the cross, he's crucified, he goes through this, the sword pierces his side, he doesn't flinch, he still acts like he's dead, they put him in the tomb, and supposedly he revives, he wakes up, he rolls a massive stone away from the tomb that it takes several people to put there, he wanders out, he appears to the disciples, apparently miraculously healed because he was beaten so badly they couldn't even recognize him, and then he acts and says, I've been raised from the dead, isn't this miraculous? After walking around for quite a while, 
doing this. Uh, the idea makes no sense from beginning to end. But it's one of the things that people have put forward as being plausible, despite the fact it claims that soldiers who do this every day didn't know if he was really dead, that he could somehow take the spear in the side and live through that, and them still not know that he was dead, that he could be put in the tomb, that he could somehow revive, move the stone, walk around on feet that had had like a 12-inch spike driven through them, appear to people and act as if nothing had happened. The entire thing takes way more. If you want to talk blind faith, that's where blind faith would be right there. That makes no sense whatsoever. So it's quite clear that Jesus actually died. The second point that Paul deals with and deals with this is, okay, if he died then is he still in the tomb? Well, the scripture is quite clear. No, the tomb is empty on Sunday morning. Paul tells us, continuing on in verse four, he was not only buried, but that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is really clear, and what he's going at in this chapter is, again, the problem in the Greek world was the entire goal of life was getting out of your body. So what most Greek religions thought at the time was that death was going to be a release from the body, that was what you were hoping for. So for them to say that no, the goal is this body is going to be raised up made no sense to them. Why would I want my body raised up? My whole goal is getting out of the body. And so Paul here is building a case throughout this chapter that no, Jesus was actually raised from the dead in his body. That's his point that he's making. And he says this happened on the third day. It's the entire point of the chapter is resurrection. But it's not just in this chapter. If you go back and you read the book of Acts, which is the earliest uh, record of the, of the early church and what they practiced and what they taught, every single teaching, every single sermon in the book of Acts is basically summed up with the fact that Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was literally bodily raised from the dead what are you going to do about that? That's pretty much what the sermons are. Because they were preachers like me, they, they spin that out for quite a while. But that was pretty much what the sermons were. You could just hear the same thing over and over again. He died, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and how are you going to respond to that? Now what's interesting is the enemies of Christianity uh, admitted that the tomb that Jesus had been in was empty. The early attempts were not that, well, the people went to the wrong tomb. They, they had to admit the tomb was empty, and there's a real simple reason for that. If you are an enemy of Christianity, and the disciples are saying Jesus was raised from the dead, what's the simplest way to prove them wrong? Just bring the body out. It's all you have to do. If Someone says that someone was dead, but they've been made alive. If you produce the body, then it's quite clear that the person actually is still dead. They're, they're not raised from the dead. And so what some people try to do, nobody at that time, again, it took a long time before somebody said, well, it was a different tomb. Everybody then admitted he was dead and he was in this tomb, but he's not in that tomb now. So how do we describe it? Well, their usual statement was the disciples had stolen the body. Once again, there's just a few problems. Number one, everybody also agrees that there were a group of Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb. It's a group of Roman soldiers who are trained in warfare. Now on the other side, you have the disciples who 
when people showed up to arrest Jesus, what was their manly response? They fled. Peter had said, hey, Lord, I'm going to be with you. I'll never deny you. And Jesus said, really? Because I'm going to tell you before the cock crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And in fact, Peter was Peter the bold. You remember it was not just Roman soldiers. When a 12-year-old girl walked up to Peter and said, weren't you a friend of Jesus? What was Peter's response? Oh, no, 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 not me. You got me confused with somebody else. Hey, that couldn't be me. But supposedly, a couple of, uh, you know, the, the next day, these same guys plucked up their courage, attacked armed guards at the tomb, ran them off, and then stole the body out. Or the other idea that came forward was the soldiers who were paid to say this said, we were asleep, and while we were asleep, the disciples snuck in, rolled the stone away, took the body out, and left. Of course, what's the obvious question for that if I tell you while I was asleep, this thing happened? Right, while I was asleep, Marty broke into my house and stole all my stuff. Well, how do you know Marty did that if you were asleep? And back then, it's not like they can produce videotape evidence or whatever else. So the story makes no sense to say they overpowered the soldiers. It makes no sense to say the soldiers were asleep, especially in light of the fact, what is the penalty if you are a soldier and you, and you let somebody break into the place you're guarding? The Romans had a way to See, today, we, like, you know, we bring guys back when they've abandoned their post, and because there's modern stuff, you sometimes get away with it. That didn't happen back then. It was very simple. You lost the guy, you're dead. There isn't a choice B. That's the way it is. Unless somebody pays your commander a lot of money and bribes you out, which is actually what happened. And all this is recorded, actually, in Matthew chapter 28. Now, the interesting thing is the, the disciples all end up dying. So they're claiming that the disciples stole the body. But if the disciples stole the body, and they know, therefore, that Jesus is actually dead, how many of you would die for something that you knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, was false? Any takers on that? But how many of the disciples died for their statement and belief that Jesus was actually raised from the dead? The answer is all of them. Possible exception of John, who lived into his 90s. They attempted to kill him multiple times, tradition says, and it didn't work. But every other one died. Yet not one of them broke down and said, okay, it was all a joke. April Fool's Day. We, we snuck in, we stole the body, we hid it, but now that you're going to kill us, hey, all bets are off. Not one of them did that ever over the next 60 years that the apostles were alive, through that entire time. Not one did it, but supposedly they all knew that it was a farce. Once again, if you want to talk blind faith, that would be blind faith. So if it's not that, if the tomb is actually empty, then what happened? But that leads to the third thing, which is it's not just that Jesus was gone from the tomb. There are many different eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus. And that includes not just friends and allies. It includes skeptics and enemies. Paul tells us, notice in verses 5 to 8, not only that Jesus was raised, but that he appeared to Peter, 
specifically because Peter's the leader of the disciples, and Peter's also the one who had denied Jesus three times. And then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and then, last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. So notice, this is what's interesting. Paul claims that he had seen the resurrected Jesus. Paul also tells us later on uh, to the Corinthians, he says, hey, I've been taken up to the third heaven and heard things that I'm not even allowed to repeat to you, and I've had all of these experiences, but that's not what Paul bases his argument on. It's not spiritual experiences. Paul says, here's why we believe in the resurrection. Jesus appeared to Peter, to the 12, later to James and a bunch of other people, and, and me, I was the last of all. But at one point, he appeared to 500 people at once. And Paul tells us, most of those people are still alive. You can talk to them. When Paul's writing this, it's less than 20 years after the resurrection of uh, Jesus from the dead. And so Paul tells us this, that these are all eyewitnesses. This is not people hundreds of years later talking about something. It's eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and there's a lot of them. There's upwards of 550 of them that Paul lists in this passage that he's talking about uh, here. And so almost all these people were still alive and could still be questioned. Again, if we think through things, if I made some claim of something happening during your lifetime, and you'd see it, it's pretty easy to debunk it. You don't have to know history. You don't have to go back. You can just say, that, that's not true. I, I was there. But Paul's saying, all of these people are still around. You don't have to believe just me. You can go talk to the people who will tell you Jesus was literally physically alive and out of the tomb. He was walking around. He ate with many of these people. He talked with many of these people. And so you can do this. And in fact, the New Testament records all of this, and it's all written in the lifetime of the people who actually saw the events. So all of it piles together to say there's no way to say that you know, Jesus just, they went to the wrong tomb or they did anything else. There's all of this eyewitness testimony. But what's really important to understand, some people have tried to say, well, maybe it was a hallucination. Except for we have no records of anything like 500 people hallucinating the same thing at the same time. Nor all of these people at different times, different places and locations hallucinating the same thing and same event. It's at all these different things. It happens to many people all at once. And none of the eyewitnesses here expected the resurrection. That's the funny thing. The scripture is really clear. The, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, which is another point I won't spend a lot of time on, but the first eyewitnesses were who? It was the women who went down to anoint Jesus' body. Now, sad to say, in the ancient world, was the testimony of women counted as being of any weight in a court? It wasn't. So, if Jesus, if you were concocting the story, you would not have said these women were the first ones who did the resurrection. But even they weren't expecting it. They were there to anoint a dead body. And then when they went back and told the apostles, it's not like the apostles said, I knew it was going to happen. The apostles said, uh, something went wrong. I don't know what happened to you all. You must have just been emotional. There's no way. And they had to be proven to them that Jesus was actually raised. But not only is it that they were doubters, the craziest thing of all is when you look at the Apostle Paul. Because as Paul points out, 
Paul not only was one who was waiting for the Messiah to be resurrected, when Paul heard the very idea that one who claimed to be the Messiah had been killed and put to death, he took it as a personal mission to start persecuting and killing anybody who believed that. So Paul tells us there in verse 9, for I'm the least of the apostles, do not even deserve to be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So one has to explain, why did Paul, who spent a period of time killing Christians, and he even tells us later, I had so much zeal for it, I was getting permission to run to other locations outside of where I lived around Jerusalem to go and gather up Christians and kill them. Why does Paul suddenly change his tune? Paul tells us why. Because Jesus, the risen one, appeared to me. He came and I knew that he was alive in body. And lest someone thinks this worked out to Paul's benefit, what did changing sides mean for Paul? It meant another 30 years of suffering. Paul lines it up. I've been beaten. I've been scourged. Five times I received 39 lashes on my back. I've been stoned to death. I've been left for dead. I've been shipwrecked. He later on gets bitten by a snake. I mean, just, and Paul spent years in prison and he ends up being decapitated for this. Why would anybody change sides like that? What's, what's the rationale behind that? But Paul says, in a sense, I'm chief evidence number one. I was a persecutor. I didn't believe in this. I'd have been there trying to kill all of you. But now I'm a proponent and I'm working harder than anybody to spread this faith. There's only one thing that can possibly explain that, and that's that the resurrected Christ appeared to me. And that leads to the last evidence, actually, that is involved in all this, which is the lives, the message, and the deaths of the apostles. Paul, just after where we stopped reading in our text this morning, he summarizes his argument this way. Notice in verses 14, 15, and 19. It says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're then found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. And then in verse 19, he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are more to be pitied than all men. So notice here, Paul does not take the bargain that people want to do today. Well, look, Christianity teaches good things. There's good stuff about it. This stuff about Jesus being raised from the dead, if y'all could just get past that, Paul says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, this is all pointless. And in verse 19, he says, actually, if that's true, then we're to be pitied more than all other men because we are still in our sins, our faith is useless, the apostles are nothing but a group of liars, and all early believers are fools because what did it mean to be a Christian when Paul wrote this letter? It was being ostracized, put out of the society, and ultimately, shortly after Paul wrote this letter, persecution breaks out and Christians are being slaughtered, including Paul himself. So he says, what's, if, if this is just some kind of a moral message, we need to get a better moral message because this moral message is getting us all killed, is what it's doing. And if, if this life is our only hope, then we have thrown our lives away. And again, I remind you, the apostles suffered 
and were martyred for proclaiming the resurrection to a man, not one of them recanted. Not one. Think of the odds of that. I mean, that's pretty astounding that not one of them changed their tune because they all say they've seen the resurrection. And again, I remind you, this was a scared group of people who now suddenly are not only bold. In the book of Acts, they are standing up to all of their enemies and they're saying, we'll get scourged, we'll get beaten, we'll get, we'll get killed. And in fact, the more they're persecuted, the more the church grows. So that the early church father, Tertullian, said, the blood of martyrs is actually proved to be seed for the church. The more you killed the early believers, the more the gospel and message actually spread. Paul goes from persecutor to martyr, all because he sees the risen Jesus. So when you combine all this together, friends, there's no other explanation. There really simply is none. Contrary to being blind faith, think through what all of this actually means. The death of Jesus is a well-attested historical fact. The only reasonable explanation for an empty tomb is actually the resurrection. Nothing else makes any sense whatsoever. And not only is it a logical necessity, but there's a whole bunch of eyewitnesses. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them who give credible testimony. And again, it's very early testimony. It's not hundreds of years later. It is very early. And the apostles, including Paul, are radically changed men and are willing to suffer and die for the belief that Jesus had actually been raised from the dead and not one of them recants. When you consider all of that together, what's kind of an amazing thing, contrary to blind faith, there are a number of people, one of the more recent notable examples is Lee Strobel, who was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and when his wife had announced that she was a believer, he was so upset with her, he set out to do investigative reporting. He convinced the paper eventually that he wanted to do a report because he was going to debunk Christianity to show his wife she was being foolish. And the end result of two years of study and looking at all the evidence I'm talking about ended up with him telling her, okay, you were right. This is actually, there is no other explanation. I have tracked down every other explanation I had and none of them worked. But Strobel's just the latest guy. There are a long line of skeptics that have done the same thing over and over and over again and come to the same result, which is there's no other logical, rational explanation for the empty tomb. So what does this mean for us? Why are we talking about this today? And I want to be really clear on these points because the point of this is not just going through a history lesson or a logic lesson. Two major questions or thoughts for us. Number one, and this is kind of underlies this whole series of what we're going to be talking about. Do I see that faith is not blind? Faith is not the opposite of facts. You hear that all the time in our culture. You even hear, if you watch TV in the run-up to Easter, they very often have these specials that talk about, well, there's the Jesus of history, and then there's the Christ of faith, as if they're two different people. That's the most mushy-headed, ridiculous stuff I've ever heard in my life. If the Christ we worship is not the Jesus of history, this is all ridiculous. And 
No Christians ever believed they were different. This is a, an idea of how skeptics want to define faith to make us feel not so bad about it. But that's a bargain that's foolish to take, and I absolutely would never agree to that. Faith is not blind. Not what it meant in Scripture, not what the early church claimed, not what it meant all the way down through history, really up until like the 1700s, when people started trying to separate fact from faith so that they thought, well, we can keep the faith even if there are these facts over here that we can't explain, all of which end up later being explained, and the problems that cause them to come up with this are shown to be not problems at all. So let me be clear. Faith goes beyond facts and evidence, but it's never opposed to them. It's not in any way opposed to that. Being a Christian, the call that we talk about here and what we're worshiping and, and doing is not a call to turn off your brain. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. If any group ever tells you basically check your brains at the door, that's a group to turn around and just don't even go in the door. Leave. We're called to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every bit of us. So faith is not opposed to that. So the idea that Christianity is built upon blind faith and that Christians are living in fantasy and voiding the evidence is actually a lie. It's the exact opposite. Notice Paul's statement here. It's about, he doesn't say, well, hey, Jesus lives in my heart. Paul says, what are you talking about? I was a persecutor. I met the risen, exalted, resurrected Christ in his body, and everything I believed was changed in that moment because of that. This is not about just what I believe in my heart. It's about what actually happened. And so in this series, we're encouraging to look at questions and answers. It's the same thing with the Scripture. The, the Bible's either true or it's not. And it's not a thing of, well, you've got faith, and then there's facts over here. That's foolishness. And if that's what we believe, then Christians would be right to be ignored. But in fact, that's not what Christians have ever believed. Our disagreement is not that, well, they have facts and we want to think of something else. We don't think they're looking at the facts. Let's be clear about it. They're not explaining the resurrection, for example, or other things. So that's the first question. Do you realize, to whatever extent, because you're here in our culture, I want to be clear, if you turn on the TV, you're going to hear this constantly. People define faith in a way that is blind faith. There is no such thing in the Scripture. Faith is built upon reality, not some kind of blind fantasy. Second question for us, have I considered the critical question of the resurrection? Because what this is calling for is for us to face the fact this is really the central issue. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then faith is futile. It is empty of any real meaning. That's when, when Paul said your faith is futile, he means, he's meaning it's empty. There's nothing there. It, it's a false mirage that you've got that you are calling faith. But if in fact Jesus was actually raised from the dead, well, what that means is there's somebody who's actually conquered death. And in fact, the, the historical record is he predicted he was going to die. He predicted he was going to be buried. He predicted he was going to be raised on the third day. All of that ahead of time. And in fact, the scriptures had predicted it hundreds of years before. And so if that in fact is true, then that's the most important event in all of human history. And we have to reckon with everything else that Jesus said. We have to consider his claims. So what's really blind faith 
is choosing not to think about the resurrection, not to consider the evidence of the resurrection, and just hoping that the question will go away. That's blind faith for you right there. So we encourage you, we urge you to consider the evidence that Paul lays out and to respond. And I want to be really clear, this is not about a nice intellectual argument and then I go on with my life. Notice how Paul begins it in verses 1 and 2. He's not saying, I want you to be open to the idea of the resurrection. He's actually telling the Corinthians, no, you have to be committed to this. Verse 1, he says, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Notice, not that, well, you thought about it, you were open to it. No, you received it. And on which you've taken your stand. You, you planted a flag in the ground and you said, this is what we believe. And he goes on in verse 2 and says, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to what it is we talked about. And then he's going to go on and say, and the core of that is resurrection. And so this is not a call to simply be open, to say, well, that's interesting. I will you know, consider that. I'll add that to my whole cupboard of beliefs here. This is a call for clear, radical, life-changing commitment. The Apostle Paul would tell us, hey, look, I understand how inconvenient this can be for you. I understand that if you think through this, what it means is everything in my life has now changed. If Paul were here, if I could speak on his behalf, you'd say, oh, really? It's changed for you. I just went from being a leading person against the Christian faith who was out killing Christians to I'm now being killed by my very former companions. They're wanting to get after me and kill me, and ultimately I'm going to be put to death over this. There are no halfway measures because the resurrection's not a halfway thing. It's either true or it's not. And if it is true, it calls us to commit ourselves to a Jesus who lived for us, who died for us, and who's been raised for our salvation. So the question for you and me, for every person in this building, the question for us is very simple. Do we believe in the resurrection? And it's a yes or a no. We humans, we always like to come up with choice C, don't we? Can I, can I have something else? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later in the series, but well, can I have the option of Jesus, the good teacher, who's not the only way to God, the Savior? And the answer is no, you, you, you can't have that. He closed that door. That's not an option. He might be a liar, he might be a crazy man, or he might be Lord of all, but there is no option that says he's a good teacher, a nice guy. It's not there. And there is no option to, well, I'm going to be a little bit open about the resurrection, but I'm not going to be committed to it. We're either committed to it or we're set against it. So which way are we? I urge every one of us in here to consider that because this is the question for all of life. If it's true, everything has changed and we're called to respond in faith. Now what we're going to do in conclusion today, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And this is actually a table that calls for our commitment. And it calls for our commitment right now. Because in this table, and very often when we take it, we focus on looking back. And it looks back to Jesus's life for us 
and for his death for us. But we also, at the end of this, if you notice each time when we do this, we say we do this until he comes. Because it's a statement in taking this, I believe Jesus not only lived for me, I believe not only that Jesus died for me, but I'm proclaiming I believed he was raised, I believe he is seated at the right hand of God, and that one day he is actually going to come back, and that's the most important set of beliefs in all of my life. And so this meal is for any believer. You don't have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be a believer because in taking this meal, in eating this bread, and in drinking from the cup, what we are actually proclaiming is, I believe Jesus actually lived a sinless life in my place. I believe Jesus was unrighteously judged and put to death and that he bore the price for sin in my place. I believe he was dead, put into the tomb, out. And on the third day, woke up, conquered death, stone rolled aside, walked out, alive as you and I are, and he continues to live now 2,000 years later. If you believe that, participate and eat. If you don't believe that, then this meal's not for you because that's what this meal is, is it's a proclamation uh, of that fact. And so I want to urge and encourage you to consider that, and if you believe, let's take and eat together and celebrate. And we give thanks as we're doing this, not only for his death, but for his resurrection. Because if there wasn't the resurrection, it might be an incredible story of love, but it would all in the end be pointless because death would still have the final word. And we eat not only in thanks looking back to that, but we eat in hope looking forward to the fact the ultimate reality for every one of us, the ultimate reality for all of us is you are going to die. So am I. You might avoid everything else in life. You know, they say, you know, it's death and taxes. Not true. You can avoid taxes. You cannot avoid death. It is one per birth. That's the way it is. So it's foolish to try and hide from that fact. But the gospel gives us hope because Christ has conquered death and promised that if we believe in him, he will raise us from the dead. And the good news is, which we can talk about in the coming weeks, how many of you know this is a messed up world? And this place is broken. The good news is in the resurrection, everything that is sick is going to be healed. Everything that is broken is going to be fixed. Everything that has been laid down is going to be raised up and restored. So we can eat in hope looking forward to that day. Father, we thank you for this gift, and we pray that you would come and meet with us. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. And Father, for your kindness and your goodness to us all, we give you thanks. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you that you have showed your love by sending your Son, who gave his life for us and rose again from death and lives to pray for us forever. We thank you that he has taken away all that separates us from you and has made us friends with you and with one another. And we thank you that he has brought us together at this table to strengthen us by his love. Send your Holy Spirit on us and these your gifts of bread and wine that we may know Christ's presence real and true and be his faithful followers showing your love for the world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As we distribute the elements, please take them and hold on to them and consider Christ's death in your behalf and his resurrection. I do want to let everyone know that we're doing something new beginning today. Tanya has gluten-free bread. If you are looking for gluten-free bread, you can get it from Tanya. She'll be right back here at the back, and she will have that. For everyone else, you can have the bread as it passes. We will take it together in just a couple of moments. Hear the words of our Savior. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, because of the resurrection, come, for all is ready. Take, eat, remember, and believe, my friends, that the body of Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of sins. Take and eat. Father, we thank you that this cup is the new covenant sealed by the Christ's blood, which was shed that the sins of many might be forgiven. Lord, we thank you that we can come for all is ready because Christ has been raised to life Death is swallowed up, and victory has been won for us. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink in faith, my friends. You are holy, O God of majesty. And blessed is Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who you sent to save us. Father, we thank you that he came with healing in his touch and that he was wounded for our sins. Lord, we thank you that he came with mercy in his voice, even though he was mocked and despised. And he came with peace in his heart, even though we gave him violence and death. But by your power, he broke free from the prison of the tomb. And at his command, the gates of hell were opened. And the one who was dead is now alive. The one who humbled himself is now raised and ruling over all creation as the Lamb of God upon the throne. And the one who is ascended 
and seated at your right hand is with us always by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit who, as he has promised. Father, we say thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. And Lord, we look forward for the sure and certain resurrection that awaits all of us because Christ has conquered death. And in his resurrection, we will all be made alive. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. If you can stand together, friends, we will conclude with the word of benediction. And for our guests, this is a practice that God has given to us where he promises to give a blessing to us. And so I encourage you to receive God's blessing upon you by faith. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ fill you with his spirit so that you may know the hope to which he has called you and live in the power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him in heaven where he now reigns as Lord of all. Go in his blessing to be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church. If you would like to support this ministry, please go to www.brcc.church and click the Give tab.